Welcome to podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today's guest is Simon Ubirek, and Simon is. Uh, we're actually conducting this over over the internet. Simon is in Denmark, so Simon, uh, thanks so much for joining me. It's been it's been a long time. I think we've been talking about doing this for maybe three or four months now. So it's a, a real pleasure to finally have you on. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm absolutely. I'm stoked for this. I'm really <laughs> happy to be here. Because it's a funny, it's a funny gig you got going here. <laughs> I think you know. I had mentioned this, you know, in our communication before the podcast, and that, you know, the internet and social media and things like that get so much, you know, blame or there's so much negativity about these tools. But, I mean, I think this conversation is something that really underscores the other side, the positive power of what technology can offer. Because we're just two strangers chatting over the internet you know you're in an entirely different continent <laughs> it's, yeah it's noon here in austin texas and it's probably what it's like seven o'clock in the evening there roughly yeah yeah six o'clock yeah, yeah yeah but yeah and uh you, <laughs> you know I, i've been i've been sort of uh stalling because i'm i'm so anxious about this I'll, I'll just let people know this i'm very anxious about doing this uh english is not my first language so it's actually my third language, so so I kind of you know it's it's kind of nerve wracking to be here. But yeah, you're doing well though. You're doing really well. Um, I would Thanks. never I would never have even guessed that. So oh okay, well that's that's high praise coming from you. <laughs> <laughs> but Simon is a is a YouTuber and has done a, you know he's got a channel and has done several videos uh, related to I guess it, what's kind of existentialism post-structuralism post-modernism but i'll let yeah. you you can obviously you know definitely tell us a little bit about more about your channel and kind of the topics you cover and maybe some of your primary interest there right uh well i started out with the existentialist angle uh in making videos because i was in a pretty terrible place myself when i started doing videos uh, I was, you know, not to get all, you know, depressing, but, you know, I was I was uh, considering suicide and um, I started reading people I thought I could sort of identify with, you know, Franz Kafka, Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, you know, all of those existentialists and, you know, the, the great Dane himself, Søren Kierkegaard. Uh, and I just, you know, wanted to communicate that to out to other people who were perhaps struggling with the same sort of existential crisis I was. And then, you know, things happened and <laughs> things took a turn to the to the worse uh, for the worse, perhaps, you know, I started getting into postmodernism uh, <laughs> and uh, that that was not a wise move um, because, <laughs> because if you do existentialist videos on YouTube, you get a certain crowd watching. You right. get people who who are stoics, you get people who are into self-help, you get people who are very about spirituality and meditation. And when you suddenly make that shift into something more academically inclined, I guess you could call it, uh, you know, you, you're really, you're really starting an avalanche there. So, so you know, the, the channel always evolves with me. What I'm putting up on the channel are the things that I'm interested in right now. And yes, that is mostly academic philosophy, which I hoped could sort of um, get more people involved into philosophy. But I just have to. I just have to level with everyone that I just can't make those, um, you know, like um, uh, pop pop science, 
you know, all this pop physics, you talk about the planet, so, oh, you, you can name drop all of these uh, things and facts, uh, you know, oh, Pluto has this thing, blah, 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 or, you know, every com shot has, you know, blah, 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 you know, you can make all these facts, you can't do that with philosophy, you right. need the arguments as well. Yeah, and some familiarity, so, I think, with just the overall history of philosophy itself, at least to some degree, you know. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. But tell us what uh, uh, tell us the name of your channel because I definitely want to give people the opportunity to seek out your videos and yeah it, you can gain some new subscribers and attention through this somehow. Well, thanks. I'm actually posting a new video on Monday, so that right, could be that could, yeah. Uh, well, I, it's just my name really. You know, it's YouTube.com/slash/SimonObedek, but uh, I, I used to call it Simon's Existential Crisis. <laughs> but uh, you know, now now just uh, call it my own uh, my own name. And sometimes I've called it like I have this, uh, these, uh, these things like it's subversive, it's continental philosophy. That's really my my shtick. Um, so it's just my name. Google it. And I'll <laughs> I'll definitely put show links or a link to the uh, channel in the show notes and everything. Now, oh, great, what, um, great. what about what was your? Did you study philosophy in uh, um, during your education, or is this just a hobby more so? Uh, well, this is actually something I've been trying to avoid, but I'll, I'll answer this question. I'm actually horribly uh, an undergraduate, you okay. know, in a very horrible sense, because I've, I, I haven't studied philosophy. Okay. okay. I've studied law, and then I pulled, you know, in Denmark, we don't have this, uh, you know, majors and minors. We just right. have a major, and that can sort of, you know, filter out to specific interests. And I was going with law first and dropped out because that was uh, an abhorrent way to live your life as a lawyer, as a judge. And then I actually uh, changed, well, I guess you could say changed majors to uh, media science, uh, media studies. Okay. Um, which, which was cool for a while because you got the philosophical uh, edge, the philosophical introduction to it. Unfortunately, you didn't get the cool guys like Marshall McLuhan or Jean Baudrillard, but you got some cool snazzy people there um and then that sh just kind of devolved into how you would you know <laughs> how you you would sell ad space for the cheapest price possible we were sort of schooled in how to sell ad spaces for companies uh you know get the furthest reach and then trying to do that in in the most inexpensive way possible and that sort of you know i, I had to quit after that i see um, and, and now I'm going to actually in September, I'm going to start studying something called the history of ideas, which is philosophy, but only continental philosophy. Oh, nice. Uh, apparently, it's something that's kind of specific to Denmark. Okay. Uh, the guy who started it back in the 60s was a raging Marxist, and he apparently um, <laughs> he did the same shenanigans as Gilles Deleuze did when he was a philosophy professor. Back in the day, like, you know, he wouldn't play the saw because Schilderlis would play the saw. But this guy was apparently so bad, they had to exclude him from that department and then put him in, <laughs> put him in theology, I believe. So, so, you know, he was bad, but he wasn't so bad that you couldn't, you know, store him away in the theology. And I think that says something about Denmark, though. <laughs> I'm not sure what. Um, so, yeah, history of, uh, philo history of ideas is what I'm going to start studying. That sounds interesting. Um... And it's kind of, I think it's interesting in the sense, too, that my, my background, at least from an academic perspective, so um, for my undergraduate 
which would be so like basically after high school or like after like my, you know I turned 18 went to college and I majored in English and sociology and so I gained through English a little bit of exposure to uh, Derrida, Foucault um, primarily not so much Lacan or Baudrillard or really any of the other postmodernists I did I would meet with my professors and they kind of actually recommended both all, you know, specifically Baudrillard and uh, Watari and, and Deleuze to me. Um, mm. But that was kind of my foray into philosophy or specifically like the postmodern, post-structuralist era. Um, and then for my post uh, or after graduate, after undergraduate, I studied mass communication, which is sounds like it's very similar to what you were in. It was more so it's a sort of an umbrella for advertising, public relations, journalism, okay. and sort of that thing, which definitely less theoretical, more more practical type stuff, and a little bit of mention of McLuhan and people like that, but nothing too inter interesting on the theory side. Okay, well, that's a cool background to have, though. Um, I'm actually surprised you have professors who would talk to you about those. Uh, philosophers you mentioned uh, you know Foucault is actually a kind of a you know the big guy here in Denmark that's uh, Heidegger right uh, Heidegger is the the you know Denmark is an analytic you know uh, analytic philosophy country but in the continental departments is definitely Heidegger so everything is sort of um, everything everything that is taught in that regard has to go through Heidegger in some way has to be connected with him in some way him and Hannah Arendt um, we do have a raging boner for those two. <laughs> well, I know uh, Heidegger has gained a lot. I mean, if, I think Derrida was specifically very influenced by Heidegger and he's yeah. always well, well, or at least talked of very highly as one of the most important, if not the most important philosopher of the 20th century. Yeah, and he was part of the three H's, you know, right. Hegel, Heidegger, and uh, Husserl. But uh, also a know. Nazi, sadly. Yeah, yeah, also Nazi. yeah, yeah, no. Uh, I don't know how we square that, especially in, in the climate that we're in at this point, but... Well, in Denmark, that's something entirely different than in the United States. We don't really have that wave of Nazism, as you guys do. Um, Denmark is a very homogenous country because we're so few people. We're only like five million people. So we tend to kind of agree with each other on everything which sounds good, but isn't because, you know, things like inequality keep rising and we seem to think that everything is just going swell and dandy, even though it's not. Um, so, right. And so, I think the danger there is, you know, the, the, con the consensus of the majority can be so ingrained or like there's a conservatism there that you have to sort of fight against. Yes, and that's even, you know, coming from a Dane, you know, we have a very great history of workers and unions, you know, it's something that's still very much there in our minds to this day. Everyone's a, a member of a union and everyone unionizes and we just had a, you know, I, I keep going on tangents, so you have to stop oh, me, Cooper. It's fine. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, we had this strike uh, last year, in the summer of last year, especially, uh, especially with people working in uh, education and uh, you know kindergartens and nurseries etc and you know it was it was hard not to be very solid solidaric is that a word like the adjective of 
in, Den in Danish it is, but you know, it was hard not to feel solidarity with these people. But still, they settle for so little. You know, they have the they had the potential to really bring the country to a standstill in a lot of ways, and they didn't. What they settled for was lunch breaks in which they still get paid. <laughs> I was amazed at how. You know how they could, how they could actually consider that to be a victory, uh, and when you do these things in Denmark, that you know there's heavy regulation as to what you can do and how you can do it. Um, you know you had the potential, you had the entire country by the balls, and you just didn't do anything. Uh, you know that you know Denmark doesn't really have that um, revolutionary uh, history. Unfortunately, we are we're a very consensus based country. Uh, and you know, when I look at Gilles Jeune in France, I just, uh, I just, I just feel something there. We need that in Denmark. We need that. Um, yeah. Well, if you think if you think it's bad in Denmark, the U.S. <laughs> is far, far to the right of Denmark in terms of the neoliberal sort of consensus. And, right. and we do not get paid even for our for our lunch breaks. No, that's in most yeah, cases. Yeah. Unless you're on like a salary, then you do. But. Um, but the reason I brought you on today, we'll, we'll segue into the meat of the discussion now, and then hopefully we'll have time at the end. Yeah. We can sort of shoot the shit, as they say. Um, but the reason I brought Simon on today was to discuss Lacan, uh, Jacques Lacan. And I'll give, I have some notes that I wanted to share just to sort of acquaint people with who Lacan is. Um, he's a French psycho, uh, psychoanalyst, and a little, little bit of facts about him. He was, I thought this was pretty interesting, the connections that he had throughout his life to, um, for one, being a, a fan of Spinoza, who I've actually kind of stumbled upon and been very interested in lately, uh, the idea of like the, the monism in Spinoza. So I thought that was kind of an interesting dovetail um, for myself. He was very active in, within the Surrealist movement. He actually met James Joyce in Paris um, he was uh, f was friends with Salvador Dali. Oh. He was he was in he served in the army in the French army at one point. Yeah, I, I I didn't know any of those things honestly. I didn't know any of those things uh, about his personality. Uh, I did know he 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 did serve a stint as a fisherman, uh, where you know his entire concept of the gay sort of you know, snowball from, which is kind of interesting. But he was a guy who got around a lot. I know that much. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely influential thinker in terms of a number of different areas of so film studies, yeah. post-structuralism, post-modernism. Um, trying to think what else. You know, the, the, theor the mirror phase theory um, is one that he's maybe most well-known for broadly speaking, but then I think on the film side, the Lacanian gaze theory, which I've talked about and during some of the film podcasts I've done, um, he's very well known for that as okay. well. But what we're going to focus on today is really the, the theory of desire for Lacan, which I think to me is, oh, it's so fascinating. I'm so interested in this. It's the most fascinating part of his work. So... Um, I don't, <laughs> I don't know where sh where we, sh we should even start. Should we maybe ground this in maybe a comparison between Freud and Lacan? Uh, w what do you think? Uh, no, well, uh, I don't think that would be too fruitful because okay. desire is kind of like Lacan's own thing. Uh, 
Right. Uh, you, you could trace it back to some Freudian, uh, you know, his his idea of wunsch, which means wish. But it's you know I, I think we should just jump you know dive into desire basically. Okay. Well, I was just going to say in the sense so, so from just to ingratiate the people that maybe aren't as familiar with these concept in that oh. desire for Lacan is something that is, or really Freud was the first to kind of bring to fore the idea that our desires and our wants are maybe are not our own or there's, they're obscured. There's like an obscure relationship between those things. And maybe what we desire or think we desire for some reason may not, you know, there's, there's something more to it. It's, it's hidden to us from our conscious mind. There are these subconscious elements that are sort of pushing us to desire certain things. Maybe that'd be the better way to. Oh yeah. To sort of of set the stage for what we're going. I think Lacan is obviously after Freud and is going to take this into a, is going to expand upon that idea and take his own route and, and sort of come up with his own definitions. But I think that is sort of the meat of the psychoanalytic tradition is there are unconscious things that are driving our behavior that we're not always aware of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something that's actually interesting about the unconscious is uh, you, you tend to equate it with the discourse of the other, um, which is perhaps, no, which is definitely where our unconscious desires stem from. Uh, when we were children, um, you know, things, bits and pieces people said to us or expressed to us, uh, sort of, you know, I, I like to say they sort of get lodged in the brain, you know, even though that's uh, very simplified. But basically, uh, if you had a father who was very into, you know, NBA basketball, you know, I myself am a, I'm a Brooklyn Nets fan, which is not always a great thing. But, <laughs> but, but, but uh, well, if he expressed some sort of, um, you know, interest or, you know, delights in Brooklyn Nets, maybe that's something that gets transferred to the child. You know, that sort of gets lodged in our brains, you know, to keep it up. And that gets to be the unconscious. You know, that's the discourse of the other. And that's really what, uh, what where desire stems from. You know, suddenly you get these feelings, emotions, affects, um, you know, convictions, whatever the case may be. And you can't really, um, you can't really put a finger on what they mean or where they came from. But usually they came from the other, which would be your parents usually if you're a child but maybe we'll dive into that more more deeply later on and i i think for lacan in particular what is fascinating about desire is that he described it as or you know we sort of i think the the instinct for us is to think that our desires are our own but if I'm understanding correctly, Lacan's theory was that our desires are given to us externally, and they are—we're not always—we're not conscious of desires. We are conscious yeah. of things like needs and wants, but that is different from a desire. My understanding was that for him, desire is something that is unconscious, and that yeah. is given to us from from outside. It's something that arises outside of us rather than within like these desires are implanted in us through through language itself and the getting ingratiated into the symbolic order of things absolutely uh, when it comes to desire uh, you know it, it comes to us from the outside 
you know, when Lacan talks about desire in the seminars, and I believe in the écrit as well, he's talking about unconscious desire. But, you know, we could say that some desires are conscious. Um, but basically, desire is always something that's constituted in a dialectical relationship with the subject and the perceived desires of the other, and the other being other subjects in this case. Um, and it is something that sort of arises from the outside. Um, uh, you know, Lacan, but, but not as directly as, uh, as may, may seem to be the case. Right. It's, you know, not, as if, if, it's not as if there's an, a needle being injected. It's not a direct relationship to where, oh, these desires are injected into your brain and then it manifests itself directly. It's a lot more, it's much more complex than that. And I think right. the, the famous Lacan quote is always um, about the unconscious or the subconscious being structured like a language. Yeah. And I think maybe that plays into it. So for for me, I visualize as as opposed to sort of this tree structure, we have the more almost like the rhizome in, uh, in oh, Deleuze <laughs> and whatnot, right? We have yeah. our desires and our like the structure of our subconscious is more akin to nodes within a network rather than this very hierarchically structured thing. Like there's all these random connections and they're sort of, you know, if you looked at maybe uh, a network, maybe even the internet or something that abstract, it, I think you would see that would be more so, at least in my understanding of how Lacan is visualizing the unconscious itself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the unconscious is something that's not really, you know, with Freud, the unconscious was something that was uh, hidden or sort of buried under the surface of the conscious. But with Lacan, the unconscious really becomes that which sticks all the structures together. It's it, it appears in the surface, and you had you know in in terms of design, you had something uh, you, you know you 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 talked about something great there you, because Lacan made a point out of needs and demands and desire, where needs were these biological instinctual um, impulses, I guess you could say. You know, I'm hungry. Uh, I need food, or I'm thirsty, I need water, I'm sleepy, I need sleep, etc. And when the child is feeding those things, you know, his, his, um, his, his big example is the child that cries out for something. Uh, and the child is hungry, and in uh, expressing this to the big other, in this case, the person who is doing uh, the mothering, it has to express it through language, and that is demand. Right. That is the demand. It has to make a demand for something, basically, and uh, and and demand demands are kind of tricky because you don't just you don't just make a demand to the big other. There's something in demand, um, which is you know there's always a demand for love. That's the excess part of demand for Lacan. So when you ask your mother, you know, I want I want some fries. I want something. You know, I want something to eat. You know, can you cut the crust off uh, my sandwich or whatever you Americans do? <laughs> uh, uh, it's it's uh, you're actually asking for love because you're asking for something that you know. Lacan said love is involves giving something that one doesn't have, and that's love exactly. Love cannot be perfectly articulated in language. It's something that has to be done. It has to be shown through actions. You have to do something extra. And if you take need and demand, you know, and this demand for love and subtract this two, you have desire, Lacan said. And desire is basically that which structures the symbolic order. 
um, you know, we tend to think of desire as something which, you know, you have a subject and it desires this thing, this object of desire, this signifier, and it goes from signifier to signifier. That is true, but you have to consider it from the big other's perspective as well. Uh, you have to consider it as being a two-way street, basically. So usually when you desire something, you have to, in a way, it happens automatically, you have to sort of ask the other for whatever you're desiring or whatever you think you're desiring. And, uh, you know, that's a problem because the other is always lacking as well. What's so important about the symbolic order is this notion of lack. There's always something missing from our lives and we, we, we desperately try to grasp at anything that can sort of fill in this lack. And, uh, you know, that's really the conquest of desire, I suppose. Um, it's that endless two-way street you know sort of like basketball you have two teams playing i like to sort of simplify it in that way uh sometimes one scores sometimes the other scores uh that's the playing field of desire interesting so just to back up a bit and i was reading it was a book that was actually edited by zizek right yesterday to prepare and if I and again the reading was so dense and Lacan is sort of a bit impenetrable himself. So you mentioned this the child having a need or a demand for something, but that so that demand for I don't know milk or what what have you whatever the the child is demanding is the need or the want. But there is um, there's that symbolic relationship is maybe the where desire comes into it like there is a um there's a relationship with the mother or the other th that is maybe more supersedes like there's something else going on above just a simple transaction of oh i want i am hungry give me milk like there's a desire in the infant or the the subject to like you said s receive the gift that symbolic exchange with the other am yeah. i on the right sort of track yeah i would yeah i would definitely say that's that's true you're sounding very anthropologically <laughs> right now <laughs> that's some no not social levi strauss you know getting into your lacan with the giving of the gifts um but yeah I, I, you know it's, it's kind of tricky to to explain because right. you know yeah, yeah because because people today are sort of asking themselves what is desire and what is desire in comparison to all of these other things but I think, you know, a very, um, a very good basic understanding would be that you're just sort of negotiating between people. Everyone's lacking, you know, that's perhaps, the, but we know we're talking about desire, but desire is only one side of the coin. The other side being lack. There's something, you know, no matter what we do, no matter what we achieve, what we get, whatever, there's always some nagging feeling that we are missing something. And that is the fundamentals of the, of desire. And when it comes to the child, you know, basically, we, our desires get more complicated as we grow older. You know, for the child, it's very basic. Um, but you could say that that desire and the demand for desire is still something that needs, uh, well, love, basically. Because Lacan said that desire is the desire for the other. And we can take that to mean all kinds of things, but you know, basically, it means that we, dis you know, we could say that it means the the that we desire the desire of the other, if that makes sense. 
um, you know, whenever we desire something, we desire it because we hope to be desired by the other. Right, okay. And, so uh, if there's a, an attractive person that I'm interested in, I want, I, my desire is to be desired by them. Is that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good? Yeah, that's one reading of the... You know, there's so many readings about that. Uh, we actually had a... Uh, you know, I attended a school or a course on Lacanian psychoanalysis, and we were really uh, going in on this line here. But, you know, desire is the desire for the other. It could mean also that we desire because of the other's desire. You know, this is fashion and gaming, basically. Uh, I want this uh, piece of clothing because other people desire this piece of clothing. And that's what I mean, you know, it, you know, it, we're, we're talking about two different things now, right. but the point is that's the dialectical relationship uh, going on here. You know, it's, you, know you, you can say something that's almost, you know, this is again a very simplified way of saying it, but you could say things that are completely contradictory and they may be true because things change depending on context right. okay. in psychoanalysis and of course in post postmodern philosophy in general. Well, even in Lacan, I think there's very, there's, different period stages of his career or work where he yes. would define Absolutely. desire differently and these ideas weren't really static um, yeah th that's four or yeah. five definitions or different takes on on desire that are sort of tweaking things here and there Absolutely. And you get, you know, you get the rundown. There's this thing, uh, this book called like an introductory dictionary of Lacanian psychoanalysis and if people are interested they should definitely check the book out um, but you, you know, it Every time it tries to define a concept, it goes through all of the stages of Lacanian thought. Like, what did he think about it in the 30s, in the 50s, in the 40s, and all the way to, you know, the beginning of the 70s? Because he did change his ways of speaking about things. Uh, because he, he, you know, in my opinion, he tended to get more obscure uh, as he went on. Because if you start reading the first seminars, especially uh, the the one on psychosis i believe he's very clear and he's you know <laughs> he's very easy to understand but he he gets progressively worse and what's interesting is that the beginners you know the 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 seminar people always uh, are advised to start with is seminar 11 but that is absolutely impenetrable for a new person trying to get into lacanian psychoanalysis um so there's definitely something there desire can mean something different and it can mean something different um, based on context, but also on how developed his idea, how his ideas were at the time. So you're on to something there. I think something interesting, and again, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but my sort of very basic understanding of this lack also is tied to language signifiers and signified in the sense that whenever we're defining or there's the there's a negative relationship, and this is not you know strictly Lacanian, but he with, he draws on this sort of tradition of maybe um, like a Saussure, in the sense that negative there's a negative relationship between signifiers, and things only make sense in the broader in the in the broader context of the system of language. Yeah. And the fact that whenever we attach a signifier to a signified, so we're basically na name, giving an, an object a name. Whenever we're doing that, that name can never capture fully the entirety of the real. And 
the label only makes uh, the signifier only makes sense because it is helping us differentiate a chair from a horse or a cat or something like that and just that in that basic principle of language simply not being able to capture all of the real there's just there's too much variety and anytime you're placing a signifier on an object there will always be some surplus meaning that is escaping am, am i on the right track yeah, definitely. And this is, you know, you're basically talking about structuralism and uh, structural linguistics because, uh, well, this is actually going to get a bit, uh, maybe a bit too ontological, but I'll try to keep it a bit, keep it a bit basic uh, for potential new uh, listeners. Um, but basically, um, the real is something that's always there, basically. It's something that's always present. And with the introduction of the symbolic order, with the introduction of the signifier, there's, there happens to be, you know, there's a, it forms a cut in the real, so to speak. Uh, and what that means, uh, you know, what, what I take that to be meaning is that a signifier is something that's always slipping, as you said. You know, meaning can't really be contained. There's always something that can be, you know, signifiers make all sorts of connections. You know, you can, if you have a certain word, if you take that to be the signifier, uh, the word rhymes with something else. The word has, you know, uh, what, what do you call this? Homophones? Not homophobes, but homophones, <laughs> you know. They, they sound similar and right. there's antonyms and synonyms, etc. Basically, with the introduction of the signifier, you introduce the entirety of the symbolic order. It doesn't happen bit by bit. It happens all at once. Whenever you have one signifier, you have every other signifier. Or you have the entire signifying chain right, okay. to Lacan. Um, and it gets kind of ontolog uh, ontological because within, you know, and that's, that's perhaps the point with the lack. Uh, you, you're always lacking, you're always going from signifier to signifier. Um, and, and you're able to sort of... Exp express uh, when something's not there by introducing the signifier you know we talk about things that are not here right now you know i could say goats and none of us would be in the presence of a goat that's what introducing the signifier does it allows us to carve up the world into different things as you said these are tables these are chairs these are goats um and what that does is it it sort of allows meaning to be uh it allows the meaning to to be uh, created, I guess, by differentiation. Right. Yeah. Exactly. This is based. Yeah. This is basic structure. This where you sort of uh, you know have a <laughs> have a signifier, and you know that signifier only means something because it doesn't mean something else. Right. You know, it has its identity through the lack of something else in the basic. And this it's kind of tricky to talk about because this is ontology, which is uh, absolutely obnoxious. To, to not write, a, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I think I can kind of expound on that in, or expand on that in the sense of, so maybe the example that language itself, it, you know, this is a common post-structuralist idea that language is a, itself is a system of differences. And yeah. any, any signifier within either the, uh, I guess, the system of language or the symbolic order is dependent upon the the rest of the system so on Absolutely. its own yeah. the signifier doesn't really like it's not going to give you much um it only makes sense in the in the system if you isolate it on its own then it doesn't there's nowhere for you to go so if you were to attempt to define a signifier of any kind like a, a horse 
what do you, you go to a dictionary and there's just more signifiers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you can't ever sort of escape that there's not, um, this is in opposition to, for me, t this is in opposition to sort of a platonic ideal. Like there's an ideal form of a horse that we are drawing meaning from or that a horse has this internal essentialist hoarseness to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th I think you're right. I'm not so well versed in Plato, but I think you're onto something because, um, well, it's first of all, it's great to hear you articulate something so beautifully. You know, I have it in my mind in Danish, and I just, you know, there's a, there's a lack here. <laughs> there's a, something that gets lost here in translation, uh, quite literally. Um, but definitely, because with signifiers, as you say, they always slip. There's always some new connotation you could be making, and you know that robs things of you know set in stone definite uh meanings you know I, I believe Saussure was of the opinion that the signifier and the signified couldn't be um torn apart from each other they were you know sort of a random and like the word they were arbitrary that's the word right, yeah. they were they were arbitrary but they couldn't be ripped apart once formed you know the signifier being the word or the phys uh, the material manifestation of the word saying something or writing it down and the signified being the concept in your head you know the image that lights up you know when we say dog you think about one type of dog and i think about another type right. of dog uh, just yeah to get uh, you know get people up to speed on that if they didn't know um, but but lacan talked about the the primacy of the signifier uh, you know, he sort of uh, inverted that. Um, he sort of inverted the relationship between the two. Said the signifier was the most important one because meaning is created by the signifier. It's not created by the images in our heads. Right, we, exactly. And I think yeah. that's kind of what I was getting at too with the Platonic this ideal. Yeah, it's okay. It's not yeah. coming from without. It's coming from within the system of objects. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I think, you, you know, your example of the lost in sort of translation between English and, and Danish. But even within a language itself, there's still like with two English speakers, even two people within the same regional dialect or what have you, there is always the opportunity to miscommunicate or misunderstand because there is always going to be a lack there. And yeah, the, yeah. the signifier cannot encompass all of the real. And that's actually one of the basic uh, uh, assumptions of psychoanalysis. Uh, the fact that, you know, you know, up until this point, we could say that psychoanalysis is basically a semiology or a semiotics. Right. Uh, but it's not because underlining all of psychoanalysis is the assumption that signs and signifiers uh, mean something else or something yeah, you mean something else than what, the, you know, whenever you say something, whenever you perform a speech act, there's always something that gets lost or there's something that gets, uh, you know, that actually gets in, you know, something that slips out of the meaning you were trying to say and something that, get, no, I'm saying this all wrong, I'm sorry. Whenever you perform a speech act, you, you, you never say the whole truth, as Lacan would have put it. There's always something that gets, yeah, lost in translation, as we talked about. And there's always something that gets, you know, that there's always something that gets subtracted and added to a particular sentence, basically. And that's the problem of signifiers. Um, you know, this is this, this is the discourse of the other basically cropping up. You know, whenever you make a whenever you forget a certain word or may, you make a 
joke in bad taste or when you just do a Freudian slip, basically, there's something that peers through. And that could be the unconscious in this case. So there's a, there's a nice interplay of signifiers and where signifiers fail in psychoanalysis. And I think to, um, this may be more of a Derridian sort of concept, but this m came to mind in the sense of over time how even so outside of speech with the, with the written word, there can be, you know, the meaning is sort of contextual. So these words themselves, even though it's the same signifier over the course of time, can even be attached to a different signified, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of maybe this is maybe a bad example, but I'm going to go with this anyways. So like in, in, Ameri in the States, uh, in English, we would have said, um, so gay at one time was meant something like happy or loosely and now yeah. it's been attached to like the like a homosexual is is gay right so even yeah. the same signifier itself over time can be dislodged from the original signified object which i think is is interesting as well in that yeah. context i don't know if that's necessarily lacanian but um, I thought no, it's it's sort of definitely parallel. it's definitely Lacanian because I you know it's Derridian, but it's definitely something Ferdinand de Saussure could have talked about it as well. Uh, he made the distinction between long et parole, where long I believe <laughs> I make I might get these two mixed up, but I believe long was sort of the language system. You know the 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 rules, the syntax, right. the grammar okay. for how language could play out, and parole was the individual speech act, right. and that okay. could go for something like the word gay. Right. Uh, you know, which should you know, I, I actually made a video on this on the Caesarian semiotics, where you you sort of you could talk about this in in the form of chess. You know, the ch the game of chess has its own internal logic, how you how the pieces move, etc. But how the pieces look doesn't really matter you could replace all of the queens with you know you know coins or whatever um so i guess that's one of the thing as well about differentiation so simon we have discussed a little bit about the symbolic order we've discussed sort of how the subconscious is is constructed similar to not not that it is a language but that it is structured in the sense in a similar fashion as that that a language operates under um we've talked about desires wants needs where do you where do you think we should go should we i almost feel like we could even back up and maybe talk a little bit about the other the the, the smaller or little other and the big other and what the distinction is and maybe give a definition there but yeah um, i'm open to yeah. to your thoughts as well no, I think that's a, that's actually a great place to be, uh, because um, you know every everyone in France in the twentieth century had a notion of what the other was. You know, Simone de Beauvoir talked about the other sex, and you know Sartre and Merleau-Ponty all discuss you know discussed the other in some sense, but they usually talked about the other. You know, maybe not Simone de Beauvoir, some other person. You know, another person, very particularized other person. But for Lacan, what he proposes with the big other is something much more radical. Uh, it's not really another person. It can be particularized as such, especially when we we're children. Before children learn that their mothers desire themselves, they the big other becomes the mother, basically. But, you know, 
the, the, the big other is, 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 <laughs> is something that doesn't exist, but it's something that functions. Uh, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's something that's closely related to language, the law, social conventions, everything that really mediates uh, communication and relations between us. Um, you know, we are inscribed in the big other, as Lacan would say. You know, it witnesses our actions, it witnesses our speech, and sort of gives them meaning, gives them direction. Um, and that's the point what I was trying to make about uh, the big other doesn't exist, but it still functions. Uh, there's no institution, agency, corporation, invisible committee sort of maintaining and supervising the other. But it's there because we imagine our thoughts and actions have some sort of yeah meaning and direction. We all invest in the big other all the time. Social bonds, cultural identity, norms, etc., uh, all of those things exist because we sort of know where we where we got each other, basically. You know, I might say something that's completely radical to you right now, but it won't be that radical because you and I are both in the, what you might call it, <laughs> the area of the West. You know, we, we sort of belong to the discourse of the West. You know, we you and I share the big other in a way because even though we are continents apart, because the rules in the United States and Denmark sort of function in the same way so it's kind of tricky to really pin down the big other but it's something that that we we play ball against basically whenever we do something the big other is there it's it witnesses our our interactions and that's why you say that the symbolic has these triadic structures that's because you can't really be alone with a person when you're talking well when you and i are talking you know even if you and i were just in the same room talking we would still be uh, there in the presence of the big other. It's something, there's something that always mediates and participates in our relations. And that's what sort of seeps in and becomes the unconscious. Because those expectations, rules, conventions, they sort of form, uh, you know, I, I might say the backdrop of our identity. But, you know, a lot of the desires we have come from the big other, you know, in that dialectical relationship. Uh, simply because people sort of put their expectations on us. You know, before we were born, we were sort of inscribed in the big other. We were assigned a gender or a sex, so we were assigned a name. And if I'm a boy, you know, my room gets to be blue. And if I'm a girl, my room gets to be purp uh, pink, whatever. Uh, those are examples of the big other or sort of instantiations of the big other. Uh, we, yeah, that's really it. And I'm given a name and, you know, certain expectations are put on my shoulders it's it's really hard to sort of pin down an exact definition of the big other but these it's sort of that thing which mediates relationships in that sense what is there a difference or it just makes me think the i don't know the, the symbolic order itself feels like a um a metaphor or a simile or, or like the exact same thing that the big other would would constitute it is, to a large extent, yes. Or maybe um, the big, is the big other the source of the symbolic order, or is that too... Oh, that's... That, no, I would say the symbolic order is the source of the big other. Okay. The, the symbolic register, because the big other is something we, we imagine to be there. Okay. Uh, there's no other for the other, as Lacan says as well. There's nothing that guarantees the law... You know, if we, if we, you know, there's that bit with Louis C.K. where he, he, you know, I don't know if I'm, you know, he's kind of disgraced now, but I <laughs> no, hope, okay. I hope, okay. I hope the examples, 
Yeah, exactly. Well, he has this uh, joke in one of his shows where he's talking to his kids and they keep asking him, you know, they say, uh, why is that? Why is that? You know, it's that continuous uh, probing of something. And then the bit ends with him saying, no, because some things are and some things aren't, you know. <laughs> and then the bit really ends when he says, you know, shut the fuck up and eat your fries. <laughs> That's the big other, basically. It's something that, 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 that portrays itself as something pompous. It has all the rules and the regulations and the laws we are supposed to follow. But basically, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's sort of a mask for basic nihilism, I guess you could say. The big other is something that resembles God in a lot of ways. But it's sort of Lacan's notion of God, even though God has been dead for quite some time, when Lacan made his talks about the big other. Um, so, so yeah, definitely the, the symbolic order is something that would probably precede the big other because we imagine it to be there. And there's the, there's actually this great example of this. Uh, Slavoj Žižek, uh, you know, stop me if I if I get uh, too too far out. But no, he he has this example. Um, he says he has said it where you know in the old Soviet Union, Stalin is there to make a speech for the people in some city, and uh, you know. Someone interrupts his speech by saying, you know, fuck you, you're, you're, you're a scumbag, you, you do all these shitty things. And she says that, you know, this guy would be, you know, he would disappear the next day. You know, he would be killed off because he critiqued the regime or whatever. But Shisek imagines, you know, t tells us to imagine what if there's a second person who, whenever the, the first person has, <laughs> has finished his critique of Stalin, what, what if there's a second person who actually says, well, don't you know you shouldn't do that? Don't you know we don't critique Stalin here? You know, that's actually not how we do things. Shisek makes the point that the second person would disappear much quicker than the first one. And that's because that's because of the internal logic of the big other. The big other is usually not someone or something which knows things. It's something that can be kept in the dark. You know, it's something that's in this case very uh, closely tied to ideology. And this is basic. Uh, this is basically Shizek's entire philosophy, right? Uh, when we think about, uh, you know, has, he has this great example of the Santa Claus. You know. At some point, children stop believing in Santa Claus and only believe in Santa Claus because they want to make their parents happy. You know, it's a nice exchanging of gifts. We're having fun. It's a kind of a silly thing we do. And the parents, of course, don't believe in Santa Claus because he doesn't exist. The only thing that doesn't know what's going on here is the big other. Um, and that's why you could sort of say we play ball with the big other, if, uh, if that made sense. Yeah, no, that was, that was great. Now let's, can we discuss the, I don't know if it's the little other or the small other? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, just to contrast. Yeah, um, and that's actually, you know, kind of a, well, tricky thing, because in, in some cases, the small other would be the objet petita. Uh, you know, you, you know, Lacan draws these two circles where the one represents the big other and the other one represents the subject. And in the middle, where the two things I don't know, overlap or meet or whatever, that's the objet petita. You know, that, that's how desire functions. You know, I talked about this playing field of desire. The ball we're playing with is the objet petita in a way. But the small other can also refer back to the mirror stage, as you talked about, which would probably be a nice rounding out of things. Uh, so I'm just going to start there and we can yeah, talk cool. about the objet petita. Uh, the small other's relation to the big other really consists in its being other to the subject as well. And when we, 
you know, the mirror stage was Lacan's first major contribution to psychoanalysis and one of his most original ones is that, at that. And, you know, when we are born, we are born too early, as Lacan would say. You know, we don't have, uh, you know, we are just, uh, he, he, he makes the wordplay of the omelettes. You know, we're a man and we're basically an omelette. We're sort of splashed out into existence, you know, like you would crack an egg and the egg yolk would just float everywhere. That's his, <laughs> that's his example, at least. And then when we get to be six months old, six months old to 18 months old, we go through the mirror stage where the child uh, sees itself in the mirror and it sees itself uh, being reflected in other people as well. You know, usually there's a physical mirror where things happen, but in some cases it's just the actions and speech acts of other people. And something happens there which, you know, the child realizes that it's not really itself. It's, it's basically, it's itself, but sort of inverted as mirrors are. Um, it sees itself and it celebrates because it sees that it identifies with its specular image, basically. And that's because before it was just this bundle of impressions. You know, what's this thing whizzing by my head? That's my fists. What's this pressure I'm feeling? In, 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 you know, behind myself right now, that might be the bottom of the crib where I'm lying. That's all the child was. But when it sees itself in that mirror, it sees itself as a whole unified, coherent being, so to speak. And that's a cause for celebration because, you know, we, we are never more whole as we are when we look at each other in that mirror. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, the, the point is that this it suddenly identifies with itself and in identifying with that specular image, with that small other in the image, it kind of alienates itself because it realizes that it is not really itself. It's a reflection of itself. But in identifying, in seeing itself as this coherent being through the medium of the mirror, it sort of alienates itself in the process, which is kind of interesting. And this is, goes on to be a thing for Lacan uh, with the, um, uh, the, eye, um, the ideal eye or the eye ideal, something to that effect where we'll constantly seek to look at ourselves as these perfect, coherent whole beings, even though we are not. And this is the point. The mirror stage is what forms the ego. And the, the ego is something that will continuously go on to, to deceive us in a lot of ways, keep telling us lies, keep telling us that we are this meta-narrative called the I. This is me, this is I, even though that's clearly not the case. You know, uh, we, we, we constantly fall apart when we, you know, cut our hair, or, you know, uh, shower, you know, skin cell, you know, we always fall apart. And the signifiers we use to describe ourselves, the signifiers that represent us gets changed as well as we get older. You know, when I was three, I might think that Spider-Man was a big part of my identity, but that's not the case anymore, you know. Um, so so that's that could be the small other in a way, okay. um, the image in the mirror. Now, at this mirror stage, is this where we are being... It, we are first immersed or become part of the symbolic order and we're sort of, I think there was a distinction I was between organic and like there's, there's something there at play in the sense of what happens whenever we do the mirror stage occurs. Like there's a transition in, is that a transition into the symbolic order? 
um, it's something that needs to be done in order to get into the symbolic order. Uh, that's why, you know, uh, people who are psychotics, you know, uh, Lacan had these uh, pathologies or clinical structures. People who are psychotics never move away from the mirror stage. They sort of stay trapped in the imaginary. And what you're talking about, the mirror stage is one of the founding things of the Oedipus complex. Uh, but in order to get into the symbolic order, we need to be castrated, basically. <laughs> um, so it, it's one of the steps to being a part of the symbolic order, but it's we're not quite there yet. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think so. But uh, do you think it's wise? Should we? You mentioned going. This would be sort of a transition into the object PTR. Is that a? Is that where you think oh. we should go next? Which I think to yeah. me is a maybe one of the most fascinating. That's maybe the single thing that got me really interested in Lacan. Yeah, and uh, well, let's see. The object PTI is defined usually as what is the object cause of desire. Yeah, um, but I don't know, know what that means. <laughs> what is no, that? No. What does that mean? No, well, it's actually a kind of a sadistic question to ask because <laughs> no one really has that uh, definite answer uh, to what the object PTI is. You know, the entirety of Slava Shisek's, um bibliography on psychoanalysis is sort of trying to figure out what's the difference of the objectivity in the drives and what's the difference you know between the drives and the desire how does it function and what does it sort of do so to say right. um but it it ha uh the name is kind of a misnomer is that what you say it's it's kind of a misnomer because it's not really an object i'd say it's 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 a certain lack, you know, that's the word that lack is there again, because it's, you know, basically you can, you can split it up into two things. And again, I'm oversimplifying, but, you know, this will be the longest podcast ever if we were <laughs> to get into it in this way. But basically, the objectivity is this notion of the lack that propels us to desire. You know, desire has no object, Lacan says, because it's always desire for something that is missing. So that means desire is this metonymy. Desire is always this thing that is deferred. We can never be satisfied, filled in when it comes to desire. Um, and that's why the objectivity is something that sort of emerges in that gap between the other and the subject. Uh, it's that, you know, those damned uh, dialectics going on. <laughs> um, so I would say that basically, if, if we are to sort of comply with the Shishik's notions of uh, drives and desire, you, you should say that the objectivity is first and foremost lack. It's the function of covering lack, so to speak. Within us, we have a void, Shisek argues, where we, <laughs> where we constantly need something to fill in that lack. And we take a, a, an object of desire where the objectivity would be a quality of that object of desire. And I'll get back to that. But basically, objectivity is the function of masking that lack. I have a lack, so I pursue something to fill in that lack, and then, you know, desire something that's always dis deferred. Desire has no object. And one way we could see this very well is actually uh, in the case of love. Because, uh, you know, when you, when you fall in love with another person, you start to idealize them. This is the imaginary dimension of it. You start to idealize them. You see them as almost perfect creatures. So if not perfect, then at least amazing things in and of themselves but 
But then there comes the tricky parts of the symbolic order. You know, what kind of laws are in play here? What kind of an object am I to you? You know, what are the rules for this relationship? Are we boyfriend, girlfriend? Are we significant others? Are we going to get married? Are we friends with benefits? You know, that's the symbolic dimension. And then there's the perhaps closer to the real uh, dimension as well, the objet petit which is, you know, uh, you know, you know, she, in my case, I'm a heterosexual male. So, you know, she has all of these amazing qualities. She's beautiful. She's smart. She's got all this luscious hair. You know, she's got all of these amazing qualities. But that's not why I would fall in love with another person. You know, what gets lost here is the obstipitita. It's that which causes my desire. It's that what makes me love that another that other person. That is the obstipitita. So it's both this lack and it's that enigmatic, tantalizing quality about an object of desire. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And it makes me think, I'll give an example or at least throw this model out and, and I'll see what your take is. So for me, I'm someone that is very interested. I really like kind of a high-end fashion quite a bit. Um, okay. So... I see in my own behavior, like, there's always this desire f to fulfill the lack in the sense of if I purchase this piece of clothing or this article, that will fill in the, that lack. But I, once I have that object, there the lack remains. And I don't know, maybe this is extending the – that's my, my conscious want is the object – that is going to fulfill the lack, but maybe that des desire is operating on the unconscious level of my mind. So, what I am really after is the to to be desired by the other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's a perfect example. And yeah. my, I'm just constantly on this. Well, I I think that I, when I pursue this, I get this piece of clothing. That oh, this will I will feel. Complete, I will feel whole. I will not need to buy anything else. But yeah. as soon as I have that, it, the lack comes back. And then I just keep on pursuing this. And I think, to me, this is one of the areas where capitalism itself is very predatory on, uh, plays so much on this, like, this consumer angle, this lack in our, in our psycho, in our subconscious and just always just sort of pressing that button in your mind of like reminding you of that lack and then creating new wants and new needs that are ultimately sort of a circular game of trying to fulfill this subconscious lack. Yeah, I, yeah. I think, well, it's hard to say anything else because I, I think you're, you're completely spot on there. Um, yeah, and yeah, I, I really have nothing to add, Cooper. That was, that was brilliant psychoanalysis from you. <laughs> Is, um, is there anything else that you'd like to articulate about the object PTR or do, what, um, do you, what do you feel like is a good bridge into the next? Because I think the only thing we haven't really discussed is chassons. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, actually, we, you know, I, I kind of, you know, I was, I was maybe too quick to close the door on what you just said about the object of desire, um, uh, whether the object PTR desire, how it works, because... You know, this is capital. Yeah, this is capitalism, basically. Uh, it 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 
you know, Shisek has this uh, amazing, uh, um, you know, I keep going to Shisek because he's a well of amazing uh, knowledge and references. You know, he has this very enigmatic style of, 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 of using something to express a certain philosophy. Right. Yeah, so that's, you know, yeah. And, and, you know, there's people here. One of my teachers in psychoanalysis actually is, is writing a book on how Shisek exemplifies things. That's the entire topic of the book, how Shisek takes something and sort of exemplifies it. You know, if he wants to make an example of desire, he'll just, you know, that's, that's the entire topic of the book. And that sort of shows, um, no, this is a tangent, but this shows the, the, the amazingness of, of Shisek, basically. Um, but, but he has this notion of the Coca-Cola, you know, you have advertising, uh, adverts, adverts which, which sort of show you this amazing amazing scenario you know i remember the old uh, coca-cola cereal commercials if you remember those um it was there was yeah they were so they, they were pandering to the male f uh, fantasy <laughs> to an almost absurd degree because you would have all these explosions it would be a guy who got the girl at the end and why did he get the girl at the end in these adverts well because of the coca-cola cereal and that's one of the points Shisek makes, and that's what capitalism invokes. It's the fantasy of of gaining an object, of gaining an object of desire. So when we are presented with a Coca-Cola bottle, for example, we imagine basically or fantasize how it would be to to obtain this object. We think, oh, you know, we're going back to the desire as the as the other's desire here, but basically. We, we we think how amazing this Coca-Cola would do. You know, it would feel great. We would feel refreshed. We would feel filled in. I wouldn't be thirsty anymore. And people would like me. You know, people who, you know, you sort of brand yourself by buying this Coca-Cola. And that's what, that's what advertisings do. And that's what films as well do. They sort of teach us how to desire. That's one of Shisek's uh, main points, especially in his film, A Pervert's Guide to Cinema. That that cinema teaches us how to desire, you know. We see something on the, we see something in films, or we see something in an advert, and we sort of copy that. You know, this is uh, this is a, uh, you know, maybe you could talk about that as well in in Jean Baudrillard in his idea of simulations or simulacra. We we take that and we sort of copy that into ourselves. You know, if you've watched, um, you know, this is a thing we we get back to a lot. But you know, pornography basically. You know, if you were a kid who watched a lot of porn, I'm not saying I was, of course. <laughs> I, I got all the chicks back then. Uh, but I, uh, I would, uh, you know, you, you would sort of, you know, if you watch too much porn, that's, that shit gets to you in a way. You think, you know, you think that all that desire works in that way, that having sex works in the way that it's portrayed in pornography. And then at some point you realize that's not the case. That would be another great example of how the Obshipedita and fantasy works, how desire sort of played in the symbolic order. And, uh, you know, this was a tangent as well. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, yeah, I've got nothing else besides <laughs> that. Um, yeah, because you made so much sense when you talked about fashion before. So I, I forgot where you wanted us to go now. <laughs> we, we haven't talked about jacinthe, which I oh, think oh. It, it, which if I'm not mistaken is sort of that's another concept that is related to objet petit a, desire, yes. etc. Yeah. Um, 
Well, Shri Songs is actually, uh, you know, this is where the trickiness of desire and drives, uh, you know, comes forth because we're having a hard time establishing what the role of the Obshapitita is in drive and desire. And I would say that Shri Songs is more closely related to the drive. But there's some interesting things that we could say. First of all, that drive is the kernel of desire or that desire is the desiring drive. And that's because drives are something else than desire. They, they, they are two things which are sometimes, um, they, they look a lot like each other, but they are kind of different because desire works in this going from one signifier to another signifier, you know, uh, mar you know, masking the lack we talked about before, but drives have this circular motion instead. Um, there are these four vicissitudes that Freud talked about when he talked about desires, which were the objects, which were its uh, pressure, its drang, and it was the aim and its goal. So with drives, there's no end goal, but there's an end goal in desire, so to speak. Desire is to get the affection of others, to feel the love of other people. But with drives, there's no really end goal here. You just circulate the object of desire because it, 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 you get satisfaction from that. So a great example would be like smoking cigarettes. There's no really point to that, but sometimes you get the compulsion to smoke a cigarette, uh, that pressure I talked about. There's this pressure uh, which sort of exerts itself on you and you smoke the cigarette and you enjoy that and then you stop and then you go back and, you know, there's no really uh, end goal here. And the enjoyment you get from that is something that is inherently connected to Shui Songs because Shui Songs is the satisfaction here. Uh, but Shui Songs is sort of the, the, the satisfaction that goes too far. You know, this would be the difference between having a nice uh, glass of wine with every meal you have and then seeking absolute total oblivion in the bottom of a bottle. You know, you could smoke. You, you smoke because it feels great. You feel the compulsion to smoke. But in the end, it will kill you. <laughs> you know, you, you know, lung cancer and all that. Um, and that's kind of the thing about the drives. And this is, uh, Shui Songs is sort of... Uh, you know, I'm getting all tangled up in the words here, uh, Kuba, I'm sorry. But, but basically, um, when it comes to, to Shui Songs, it's a transgression of the pleasure principle. You know, Freud talked about the uh, reality principle and the pleasure principle, and they sort of negotiated how pleasure would function for a subject. So if I was feeling, uh, you know, if a person was sort of feeling, uh, you know, sexually aroused in one way, the reality principle sort of mediated that, you know, you can't really go out and rape people, you know. <laughs> you know, that, that would be the function of the, the reality principle. But the, pre the pleasure principle was only there to, to gain the subject pleasure and avoid pain. And Shui Songs, this, this circular rotation of the object of the drive, that is a transgression of the pleasure principle. That's where pleasure becomes absolute and total abysmal pain. And, um, you know, you could see this in a variety of ways. I talked about smoking before, you know, it feels good, but it gets you cancer. But, you know, some people talk about anorexia as well. You know, it's, it's, it, there's some releasing uh, pleasure in vomiting all the time. But whenever you see yourself in the mirror, you feel like complete shit. That would be jouissance. It's that perverse enjoyment of something which is inherently something painful as well. 
And, uh, you know, a, a very uh, low stakes example of this would be like eating a lot of chocolate, which would be outside the realm of the need we were talking about before, because this is something that doesn't just cover a basic um, biological need. But you, enjoy, you, you eat chocolate to, for, you know, to enjoy it. But at some point, you're probably going to eat too much of it. You know, if you have a, like a Hershey's chocolate or whatever, uh, and you suddenly you, you eat too much and you feel like complete and utter shit. That would be Shui Songs. It would be that uh, weird feeling between pain and pleasure. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, actually, the book that I was reading had described it as anything which is too much for an organism to bear. 99 oh, yeah. per- 99% of the time, it is felt as unbearable suffering. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh, very true. But of course, it comes in stages because there's Shui Songs, which is completely extreme. And then there's Shui Songs, which is, you know, maybe not as extreme. So I would say the example of chocolate could probably still be there, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think there's probably multiple formulations, even within Lacan as well, of what Jossance is to some degree. Yeah. And th- th- exactly because of Shui Songs, Shui Songs is death drive. You know, Lokong says that every drive is a death drive. Um, you know, it's it's this thing where it, it, it sort of pursues its own extinction. And it, it and every drive is sort of an attempt to go beyond this pleasure principle to pain. So death drives are not really a, a drive towards death, you know, a suicidal urge or whatever. It's it's really something that, that leads to, exactly as you said, something unbearable for the organism. I have a hard time gauging your reaction <laughs> because I, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a pervert. I'm not your object of desire. I'm a neurotic. <laughs> I'm constantly trying to sort of gauge your reactions and trying to verify if what I'm saying is complete weirdness or if it's something genuine. No, I think uh, I'm just, tr- I don't know. I'm sort of interested in the death drive as well. And, but it, I think the, uh, maybe the commonsensical, definition of the death drive is what you've described as you know it's it's a baby a one-on one-to-one desire for to for self-annihilation but that's not really what it is but i think that's what many people like if you told me the death drive i would assume that's what it is like there's some sort of um dialectical relationship between does between wanting to be annihilated as well as wanting to be whole i don't know there's some kind of a weird relationship there right um, i don't know it, if lacan it, really even goes into but that's just something that i came to mind no and something I, I, that i'm fascinated in because i think there's you know in a lot of self-destructive behavior um like you described um you know excess anything really that becomes that becomes pain I don't know. There's something. There's something to that, and I don't know how to art really articulate. No, I'm, that. I mean, you know what I mean. It's like I e- even in my own like I'll I'll use my example again. Going back to fashion, it's the desire for that can be so overwhelming that I will I will spend money that I don't have. Like there's a oh, path- yeah. there's a pathology in that relationship as well. Um, yeah that I will, I will seek, regardless of the consequences, I will continue to seek this thing because um, I, I imagine it will fulfill that lack. 
Yeah, I'm just kind of I'm rambling a little bit. <laughs> no, no, you're not. No, this is actually you know I, I was uh, being taught in Lakong at that school I mentioned before, and one of the things they did was to sort of uh, you know we had to do these um, these uh, jams of uh, of symptoms. You know, we would look at different symptoms in the world. Uh, a symptom again can be a lot of things, but you know, basically we had to 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 take we had to do this riffing. This analytic, this analytical riffing all the time, because psychoanalysis exactly is something that cannot just be uh, contained neatly in one box and then another box, etc. It's something where you have to really discuss your way to it. So what you were doing right now, that off the cuff uh, riffing of analysis, you know, of this uh, desire to 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 have new articles of clothing, that's exactly that's the most important thing of this theoretical approach to psychoanalysis that we're talking about right now and i think that's the most one of the most important things people listening into this could should take away it's not uh, it's not a science it's really uh, you know it's it's something that has to be developed in this argumentative way right so that's very important thing because yeah psychoanalysis isn't just this neat thing i look at this too in in the context of things like an amusement park or in any time, I don't know, some, you know, jumping out of an airplane, right? Like that, there's, that lends itself to this idea that the sort of cliched idea of what you would assume the death drive to be. Yeah, yeah. But there is something there as well, I think, from a psychoanalytic perspective in that we pursue these dangerous things. Like there's, I don't know, there's something, there's a pleasure that we're seeking yeah, yeah. And the other, the other, is there a concept of the big other in terms of like, I believe there is as far as like death, like we want the, like death is the ultimate sort of lack or there's something that no. we're pursuing there, something that the dead have that we want to act, have access to, but we don't want to necessarily be destroyed or annihilated. I don't yeah, know. There's, there's like a maybe that's even that's like a, a simulated death. Uh, well, that sounds very Matrix. That sounds very cool. A simulated death, or like in the in the Baudrillard, Baudrillardian sense of like a simulation of that's. Oh yeah, know. yeah. I can't quite um, articulate that in the framework of Lacan, but I feel like there's something there. There's a, there's meat to that idea, in trying to yeah. figure out how that plays into this framework. I think that actually, well, I keep going to the well of Shisek, but and I'll do that again. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, extreme sports is a great example of drive, as you said, you know, jumping out, you know, base jumping in general, uh, because you seek out the thrill of doing the acts, knowing full well it could kill you, you know, in a more, uh, in, in a broader, uh, you know, it's a much more radical way to seek thrills. Um, you know, so that would definitely be a thing within the drives i would say i mean it's um, almost it's almost jacent as well though because it is there's that fear um and i again will use this example of like a roller coaster or um, one time in las vegas i there's a they have at the top of the stratosphere hotel there's this it's like a vertical zip line so they strap you in you sort of like fall down all the way from the top of the of the hotel and it's something like 800 feet above las vegas and there's something, okay. it's very, it's terrifying. So in the sense, like, it is almost unbearable 
to a degree. Yeah, yeah. it causes so it you kind of that fits, anxiety. Yeah, that there's that thrill in the pain of it. I don't know. But I'm also thinking in terms of like the sort of the S&M world or like the BDSM world where there's all these, yeah. you know, you're see like it's pain, but it maybe that's the reverse though, because that's pain is becoming pleasurable. I mean, there's there's definitely something in 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 um, in enjoying your own symptom. That's a thing that that Shise goes back to as well. But you you can have these things. These uh, these symptoms basically can can be anything. But there's there's something underlying a symptom. We 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 do symptomatic behaviors because of a trauma or some sort of anxieties. You know. Uh, you know, basically, the way you think about symptoms would be the way you think about them in psychoanalysis in the most simple sense. So I I keep thinking about uh, a person like um, like Emil Chioran, if you know that guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, you know, pessimist. And he kept on, you know, droning on and on about how he wanted to die, but he really didn't. You know, he died. He lived until he was in his 80s, right? He, he lived to be quite old. And that would be, you know, that would be Shui Song's as well, I would say. You know, he would be a, the perfect example of a hysteric. Someone who keeps complaining but enjoys that uh, act of complaining. And that would be, a, you know, a case of Shui Song's as well, I'd argue. It's not something that is as extreme as, you know, doing the Las Vegas jump, as you mentioned. But it's definitely in the same realm. Is there anything else as far as, is there, let's say we've been recording for a little bit over an hour, maybe an hour and 15 minutes. Oh, um, wow. Do you, do, you have, <laughs> do you have any other Lacanian points or is there anything we sort of left on the table that we had discussed yeah. that you want yeah. to delve into further before? Because if you have time, I would definitely like to at least um, open up and maybe have, uh, we'll step outside of the serious Lacan yeah. discourse and we can maybe have a little bit more fun. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Lacan is not fun at all. It's a, it's a, it's a drag. But one thing I wanted to to say, which I didn't get to say, is that in the drives, um, the object of desire, the thing we are circulating, Lacan and Jacqueline Miller, who was uh, Lacan's uh, son-in-law, what they argue is it's actually the drive itself. So in desire, what propels us to do something is this. Um, lacks you know this this pursuit of the signifier this pursuit of the affection the desire of the other but in the drives it's more of a compulsion to do something you know i, I touched on this very briefly but that's just something i wanted to perfectly uh, highlight is that we we do something in the drives which seems almost uh, mechanical you know one of the examples is is the terminator of the original terminator film uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, character keeps pursuing Sarah Connor, and even when he's almost about to die, he still pursues her. You know, when his skin is sort of stripped off. Right. Uh, if you remember that yeah. last scene. Oh yeah. That would be a perfect example of the drive, and uh, you know, it, it, that that's very important to remember that it's actually nothing that makes that the void basically is the object of desire. We just have a compulsion to do it. Another great example and disgusting example of the drives would be to, you know, fart under your covers and doing the old Dutch oven. <laughs> that would be a drive as well. Uh, and those small perverse acts like smelling your own sweat, some people uh, uh, pick their nose as well, you know, in, in ways where they don't, you know, there's no boogers present. 
you know, it's very important to say that when we're talking about death drives, it doesn't have to be this extreme thing. It can be very mundane, everyday parts of life as well. And I just wanted to make that uh, prescient for everyone listening. Okay. Well, uh, I think if if it's okay with you, uh, let's let's open things up, and we'll just. Uh, I was sort of I'm sort of curious because you had mentioned that you uh, your in laws, I believe, what you were telling them that we were going to be doing this podcast, and they were sort of interested. Yeah. Oh, you're going to be speaking to an American? Can you tell me a little yeah. bit about that? I'm I'm curious, uh, just the context and. What, uh, <laughs> well, uh, what, what the, the context, were, what the what the conversation was like. Yeah, well, I keep uh, well, I'm not very. Uh, I keep interrupting you in your questions. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm really not that uh, object of desire for you in the Lacanian <laughs> sense. But basically, uh, I thought, uh, you know, tomorrow we have to go. My wife and I, we have to go and uh, watch a certain film with Rebel Wilson because my <laughs> father-in-law, uh, you know, said this was amazing. We need to watch this and uh, and and. You know, we, we, we had to, but then there was some uh, confusion about the dates and we thought it was today. And, you know, I was like, well, if we, oh, if I it see. has to be today, uh, I, I can't because I have to talk to a guy from <laughs> Texas. And, you know, they were sort of making jokes about how you were my rich uncle from Texas. <laughs> and, and that's rooted in a certain uh, Danish series of film, which is called Little Pia, or Lille Pia, where there's this kid who just lives a normal everyday life in, in Denmark. <laughs> and he, uh, he has this rich uncle who lives in the U.S. who buys them all kinds of things. You know, this was after the war and Denmark right. was occupied uh, by Nazi Germany. So we were kind of, you know, we were sort of shooting the shit there because, you know, <laughs> Danes, Danes have a, a kind of, they, they, they don't like you Americans in a lot of ways, unfortunately, I would say. And my in-laws aren't that bad, but <laughs> that's, that's just how we kind of got to talk about it because there's something weird about doing YouTube videos uh, you know, I, I moved from a guy who just had an interest in philosophy to suddenly being asked about philosophy, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. You know, in, in, in a way, you know, I just, as I just said, I'm not even, you know, I'm not right now, not even an undergraduate, but because I have this uh, autodidact interest in philosophy, I have the possibility to explore things which other people might not get to explore. And so there's something interesting about me because I'm a YouTuber. And I even have people who donate to me, um, so that makes it kind of interesting. You know, I'm, I'm you know, they take an interest in me because I'm a millennial. <laughs> That's basically <laughs> why, and I, I live the crazy millennial life <laughs> of YouTubing and, and talking to strangers. Talking to strangers, yeah, <laughs> strangers, yeah. Uh, actually, it's kind of interesting that you like fashion. Oh yeah. That's oh. Well, Sorry. the only thing I've seen of you is is uh, your character on Twitter. You know that blue <laughs> guy with red eyes. That's how I. No, you changed it recently, right? I I did change it. I had a so I'm a huge fan of the well the book and the film series Dune uh, by Frank Herbert, the sci-fi, uh, particularly okay. the film. Especially I saw it as a kid, so that is the essence. Well, that's where I derived my sort of handle for my. Um, for my personal, I call it my, my shit posting account, which I don't want to necessarily put out there because <laughs> obviously you'll, you'll be, you firsthand can testify that, uh, the content is, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, a <laughs> yeah, bit, that's it's true. Uh, definitely on the raunchy side. It's, uh, you know, it's transgressive, 
Um, but it's a, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, and I think, to me, it's an extremely, Twitter itself, or really all of social media is a very, um, a postmodern thing. It, it could only exist, or it like just fits the the overall, the logic of late capitalism, to, to quote Jameson there. Um, yeah. I don't know, there's something interesting about it. And the irony, and I, I don't know, to me it's it's very much postmodernism personified in, in some real, uh, degree or fashion. Okay. Well, one thing, uh, I'm actually looking at the, the, the Twitter account in question, <laughs> and um, <laughs> which I won't name. But uh, you know, this is uh, the character. I'm, I'm sort of seeing your, the image there, and that's MF Doom, right? That's the rapper. That uh, so that is actually a picture of me wearing. I have, have a oh. Doom mask, but that is that is actually oh. my my face, or that is me wearing the mask. I'm just uh, I'm obscured enough. Oh. I obscured it enough so that people couldn't <laughs> tell. But I thought it was a very uh, cool picture to use. Okay. Well. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're definitely right, but. Yeah, that that sort of skewed my expectations of you because I, uh, you know, it's like that guy Grit Cult on Twitter. Do you know that guy? No, I'm not familiar. Oh, he's a guy who likes to, you know, he made his own CCRU, which is uh, I don't know if you know those guys, but these were like Nick Land and Sadie Plants who took the theories of uh, Deleuze Guattari and just ran with it. You know, Nick Land. You you, you know Nick Land. I've, I'm um, familiar with him. I've never really delved too far into his work but i did know that um i've i had just finished actually reading capitalist realism by mark fisher and i know that oh, fisher was book. a sort of uh land was sort of his mentor at one time yeah yeah um but this is like uh you know grit called sort of trying to replicate the think tank or journal they had back in the 90s uh and he's sort of uh, an enigmatic character himself um, I just can't find him right now because he has all these yeah weird symbols like some other unmentionable Twitter account has as well. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's just you know if you see this yeah his name is just Greek Colts so you can search him up if you'd like and he's getting all vapor wavy now <laughs> in his uh, in his image. But there's something this you know these uh, weird grungy characters um, they sort of just pervade Twitter. They're yeah. just everywhere. Yeah, that that Which is funny is, uh, too. You were mentioning. I thought it was funny when we were kind of uh, DMing one another about you coming on the show and how there was this contrast between my demeanor on my on my shit posting account and yeah, on yeah. The, on the podcast, which I thought was really amusing. And I shared that with several friends because they, you know, I was I was even kind of embarrassed to even tell some of my friends that oh, you know, I, I post a lot about cum. Yeah, <laughs> you do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And so I shared that with them. They thought that was funny in, in that context. So, In that context. Oh, you have a dog. I do. I have, we amazing. have two dogs that are prattling around here. Ah, oh, amazing. Uh, but <laughs> the thing, though, um, you know, uh, you, when we were doing the episode with that guy, I forgot his name, um, that guy who has his own podcast as well. Fairly recent episode. Oh, uh... Um, was it I John forgot his Dicterman or was it? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Gotcha. That was yeah. yeah, that was his name. Uh, um, <laughs> it's just weird to sort of see you, you know, being this, uh, yeah, normal, you know, uh, normal 
uh, average run-of-the-mill person. You know, you sound like a fairly normal American, but then you you log on to this account and you just see come everywhere, like, <laughs> <laughs> which is amazing. And uh, and I actually, when I listened to that episode with that uh, Sictor man guy, uh, if that's his name, I'm sorry if I'm yeah, butchering yeah. it. No, but but he um. You know, I was actually going through my analytics, Twitter analytics, because you were you were talking about shit posting, and I ha- I think I have the Trump here because if that's a thing you say in English, but I do think I have the edge on you guys because there's a person who follows me, who is my biggest biggest follower, and that is the original voice of Siri. <laughs> oh wow, Susan Bennett. Yeah, Susan Bennett is the original voice of Siri, and she follows me, and I have no idea why she's following. I, I have never, you know, contacted her. We've never, you know, yeah. She has like 2.1 million followers and she's following, you know, a random YouTuber who, who makes jokes about Deleuze and, you know, Foucault slurping come out of Deleuze's ass. Okay. <laughs> I just find that's so amazing. I just, I have no idea why she's doing it. I, I will, do you know what the term for that is? That That's called felching. Felching? Felching is where you... Or someone sucks, it can, they can use a straw, or with their mouth to suck the, the cum out of another <laughs> orifice. Uh, another orifice, that's a... Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. So but... I read this, uh, there's a book, uh, and you probably <laughs> might be familiar with the author, uh, Chuck Palahniuk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote yeah. Fight Club, and I think Choke was... Choke is the book that's all about the sexual deviance. Yeah, so okay. That's, that's actually where I, I heard that term first. Oh, that's yeah, and he yeah he wrote some amazing short stories. The one about uh, you know the the guy's guts being ripped out because he sat on a swimming pool fan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just called guts. Yeah, and and survivor. Yeah, he, yeah. I'm actually a fan of that guy, but I'm I'm kind of uh, I don't want to say it because every time you say you like Chuck Palahniuk, you know, sirens go off. Right. Yeah. There's definitely some I think misogynistic elements. Misogynistic there, and. and- but I mean, I, I don't know how old you are, but I'm I'm 36, so I I came oh, to, I came to of age in a different time. Like the sort of cultural, like there wasn't as much um, discourse about misogyny and like these things weren't necessarily out in the front of the culture at that time the way that they are now, at least in okay. the U.S. Um, so it well, was sort of like in the 90s, it was a bit of a different time. It was sort of a lot more ignorant to some degree. Okay. Of these well, things. We, so these, the social justice element was not there the way that it is now and where that stuff okay. is a lot more at the fore of culture. And, um, so, you know, my next video will actually be on Mark Fisher's book, Capitalist Realism. And, um, you know, in connection with that, I happened to read his paper his essay, you know, exiting the vampire's castle. I know if you read that. I have not read that yet, but I need. To, oh. I actually need to reread capitalist realism because I don't, I don't remember anything out of the book. To be honest. <laughs> no, you don't have to. Just watch my video and like and subscribe, and <laughs> you know, you, you, you'll be fine. But no, um, he had this notion of, uh, you know, because there seems to be a sort of shift in critical theory, where. You, you go back to the original um, working class, what do you call it? Uh, yeah, class struggles. And you, you sort of leave behind the, the, the um, social justice parts um, of the discussion. I don't know if you've noticed that 
um, in your comings and goings on the internet. But there seems to be starting a slight shift where things sort of revert back to or transform into the old class struggles again. That becomes the main point of the left. You know, you've heard the... I don't know where you stand on social justice warriors, so you'll have to fill me in on that. But, you know, there have been been critiques of that, you know, even from the left. You know, Slava Shisek is an example of that. Well, I think, yeah, there's been plenty of uh, backlash or critique of that uh, sort of politics. But for me, I mean, I do see the value of... And I do think that it matters... Um, and I don't know, to me, it's in some ways, it's very similar to the divide between um, quantum theory and Einstein's theory of relativity. Like, there are these two, like, you know, quantum theory is describing the universe at very small scales, and okay. uh, relativity is describing things at very large scales, but there's no synthesis between these two pictures. And okay. for me, that is where the left is at this moment, is there is the class struggle from the sort of Marxist tradition or even post-Marxist, like where class is at the fore. And then you have a more upstart sort of, uh, like sort of, I guess, intersectionality, for example, as being, as a different element. And I think that both, there has to be a synthesis. I don't know how to square that circle between these two, but I think it is absolutely, I mean, if you look at it, because I had a gentleman on the podcast who was a black homosexual male who was raised um he was raised in a in a muslim household so if you think about the layers like i think if you look at him situated in in reality his experience is extremely unique and there's different levels of oppression that are operating for a person that that has all of those particulars in their identity right so i don't think you can everything cannot be reduced entirely to class like we have to synthesize identity somehow i don't know what the answer is in in solving that or coming to a synthesis between them but i think we must take each into account to really have a robust left political movement yeah but i think this shift is sort of a reaction to uh the left you know losing steam uh, to the populists, in, you know, in, in some degree, um, for at least in the U.S., what I th- what I see is capitalism is so monolithic; it's so overwhelmingly powerful and able to m- sort of it's so able to co-opt everything and just yeah. absorb all and attenuate all rebellion or revolution into itself. Absolutely, it's so sort of it's kind of like a blob, you know. It doesn't have a sh- it has a structure, but <coughs> It's able to m- sort of bend and sh- and absorb these different things to sustain itself. Yeah, deterritorialize us all. Quotes, and, as uh, Fisher would have put it. And so, like, what has at least in the U.S. what's been successful is identity politics or social justice movements have been the only thing that's been able to achieve any success there is not the ability to create a mass political line in this country. And if you look from a pragmatic perspective, the gay rights movement, trans rights, et cetera, all of these smaller social justice or more like feminism, you know, these more intersectional categories are where groups can coalesce and and get a a political end achieved. Whereas it's much more difficult to get a broader 
Um, oh gosh. I'll have to edit this out. That's okay. I have a dog as well, and she barks all the time. So. I'll resume here in just a sec. But yeah, um, what I was really going into was just this kind of dialectic between the class sort of Marxist or Marxist influence thought and then the, the um, sort of social justice slash intersectional movements. And I think part of this, and a lot of people have said this too, is this is part of capitalism. Capitalism is always creating new identities. And so there is to some degree, you know, a lot of Marxist critiques of intersectionality have been, you know, these are, this sort of progressive stack of identities is, and is capitalism's way of sort of being a bulwark against class mobilization. And I don't know, I don't know if that's true. Um, it seem it makes some sense to me, but I don't know if I'm ready to fully endorse that that standpoint. But I do think you have to take both into account. And I don't think that oh, yeah, after yeah. the revolution, only basing, you know, I think that post-revolution, there can still be misogyny. There can still be racism. There can still be, you know, all these different phobias against specific yeah. groups. And I also don't think that the revolution, you know, transitioning to it, whether a socialist or anarchist sort of organization for society is going to be the end of human suffering or the end of human conflict. And I think a lot of people maybe lose that sense and think that capitalism is the cause of all human suffering, which I don't agree with. I saw someone actually, no, uh, no. Um, someone that I follow was having a disagreement with someone on Twitter and they were mentioning, you know, to some degree, like these things are part of the human condition, like suffering, etc. These are yeah. fundamental things about our experience that aren't going, that capitalism is simply not responsible. Yes, capitalism is a net bad in that it has all these, it allows all these systems of oppression to occur, but capitalism itself is not, removing it from the equation is not going to be the utopian society that people may think it is. There will still be issues that need to be meted out and flattening out yeah. hierarchies and things like that. But you sort of touched upon something very interesting. That's the pre-corporation of capitalism. You know, that's actually a Mark Fisher term, where things don't get really, you know, what do you, you know, recuperated or, you know, absorbed and 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 sub subvert. You know, what do you call it? Undermined, I guess, in capitalism. Everything is capitalistic right from the get-go, uh, and that was actually one of the major critiques of the Oedipus complex by Deleuze and Guattari. You know. You, you have to consider the system where people act, and that would be the capitalist system. Um, and I think, yeah, you, you said, you know, capitalism is, is, is absolutely amazing at eroding fundamentals, basically. You know, that's why we don't really have the, uh, the, the great um, narratives you know socialism marxism religion whatever you you know all of that i believe can be traced back to capitalism and i guess where i wanted to go or you know try to <laughs> sort of, you know this is not shit posting but you know 
say that if you if you erode all um, norms or all underlying narratives, so to speak, or overarching uh, narratives, uh, and you get people to think about you know being white, you know checking their privilege, etc. Wouldn't that be a you know wouldn't that wouldn't that be a cause for the rise of nationalism? You know if that makes sense. If anything I just said made sense, did it? <laughs> Yeah. Um. And, and uh, well, because I'm I'm so you know I, I constantly doubt everything I say. But basically, if you have capitalism, that's sort of you know uh, removing all the fundamentals of what it is to be a, a person. You know, now we have a post you know these this post humanist age we're in as well, where the the lines of being you know what makes out a human being is being blurred. You know, both from technology, which is provided provided by capitalism in a lot of ways and our conception of nature as well which capitalism has changed as well you know um you know there's there's a lot of you know if we have the ground under us being absolutely dissolved and you have you know these social justice um pensions sort of forcing you know wouldn't that be uh, some cause of of populism or nationalism hmm. i don't know if that makes sense i as I said, I keep doubting every word I say. <laughs> I don't know that... I don't think that necessarily... See, I, I see it the other way around. I think that the nationalism is what causes... Well, then again, I mean, I don't know. I'm not as well... I'm not able to articulate dialectics or dialectic logic very well, but I think that may be the best way to understand this... Um, particular moment because you do have these tensions between in the set like I said earlier with capitalism is always creating new identities and yeah to yeah. me postmodernism again to quote Jameson is it's the cultural logic of late capitalism and that I think is play capitalism is creating the ability for all these different um, identities to to exist or to come into being themselves, but I don't know if I would necessarily say that political correctness or intersectionality or that perspective causes nationalism. I well, think it's yeah. something. I think it's something different. I think psychoanalysis may be the best lens through which to view it, and I this. My, I had a conversation with someone about sort of Lacanian desire and jacence and whatnot and the other, and they were ta giving me the framework that we like we have a desire for what the other desires or what the other has. Like there's a novelty. So um, this may be very, maybe able to give a better example in the in the concept of incels, for example. Yeah. So they are very resentful of of women's sexuality and the like the feminist movement because they think that women have access to a pleasure that they don't have access to. They want th they are resentful that women are able to experience a different sort of pleasure that they they cannot. They want that. And this this same sort of framework can also work in reverse if applied to something like immigration. So we, as Americans, for example, we have, we have our own thing, our own identity, our own pleasure, 
that we are afraid in a, in a subconscious way that immigrants are coming to, they're going to take our, our ability to experience this pleasure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't my intention to sort of <laughs> go away from the, <laughs> from the shit posting, but it's oh, just kind okay. of interesting okay. to, okay. yeah, it's, it's just kind of interesting because it's not really, you know, I only experienced that through Twitter basically, because it's not really a, a, a thing we talk about in Denmark. Interesting. In Denmark, though, political correctness has become an obnoxious punchline, though. Um, you know, everyone's getting offended. That's really the thing that, that you hear about in Denmark. And uh, it's, yeah, it's always applied to the left. You know, every time someone, you know, political correctness isn't even just political correctness. It's every single, every single bad thing you can imagine in Danish discourse, you know, of pol politics. That can sort of be traced back to to uh, um, to political correctness and it's just an obnoxious punchline as always there uh, so i don't get to view things the way that you guys do in the u.s on college campuses etc so it's I mean, just kind of cool it was like i said when I, i'm a bit older so this stuff didn't really become widespread i mean again i'm in texas at a i went to a public university so not the most radical campus a at all. Um, I went to <laughs> no. very much a, a school known for partying and, and whatnot, and I definitely did my oh. share. So it definitely wasn't the most politically nice. active campus, like a, a you know like a Berkeley or someplace like that, or one of these uh, smaller, like Oberlin College or these places that are a little bit more um, politically progressive or in that sense. So. Okay. Uh, I think that came much a little bit later after I sort of w was out of school. It seems like this has become something. This is a m movement that's more or a phenomenon that has come on since I've stepped foot on a college campus. Okay. Well, that's, you know, it just, you know, when I talk to you and you ch tell me about the, you know, the state of things in the U.S., you know, it's something that makes it quite interesting when you have a candidate, candidate like Bernie Sanders running because, you know, if you keep referring back to Denmark, there's still some underlying differences, um, which, you know, I try to actually tell people to ask me questions about Denmark, <laughs> you know, in case they were, you know, curious about what that may entail. And, you know, Denmark is, of course, different to the U.S. from, you know, the, the welfare model. You know, we, we actually have welfare here. <laughs> Right. We actually have benefits. We I can go to the doctor and get something checked out without paying anything for it, without even having insurance. Um, but there's also some some differences in the in the culture, and of course, there's you know this you know we're completely different uh, geographical uh, locations. But it's just kind of funny to to hear Bernie Sanders sort of refer back to Denmark when he's expressing <laughs> an ideal for the U.S. Now, I think it's admirable, you know, even as uh, an anarchist myself. But, <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just, there's some gap here. Again, we're talking a lot about gaps, and this is definitely one of the <laughs> gaps in culture. Because I, I used to live in the United States. I've lived in Los Angeles, and I've even lived in fucking Salt Lake City. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, the, the great Mormon states. <laughs> uh, my father's actually Mormon. So, um, so, so that's why it, yeah. So, you know, I see the differences, you know, it's, it's just, I wouldn't say it's worlds apart, but it's definitely something to that degree in, in cultural, in, in cultural differences. 
even though definitely, you know, some of the more wilder things of California could definitely be seen in Denmark. Absolutely. But yeah, I just think that, for example, in Denmark, we have this clear separation of... Uh, uh, um, no, we don't. No, sorry, sorry. Uh, in in U the US, you have a clear separation of church and state, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah you, at least yeah. nominally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But okay. an athe if an atheist um, ran for president, they probably would not get elected. And I, I no, wonder, exactly. I wonder even <laughs> if a pra even a Muslim, I think would it would be difficult for someone who isn't actually practicing Muslim. To get okay. elected president, unless maybe they were, if they were white, maybe they could pull that Ooh, off. But yeah, I mean, even yeah. I don't even know what would be worse though, um, <laughs> for the conservatives. Would they? I don't know if they would oppose a Muslim or an atheist more. You know. <laughs> well, <it's, laughs> well, that's uh, that's really a rock and a hard place. You're <laughs> you're putting them because they both hate both. They hate both groups tremendously, right? Absolutely. That's, and I mean, yeah. there's just this nominal. There's a nominal. Christianity that's pervasive in the U.S. and people don't really go to church or have it, but there's still this cultural legacy of it is so powerful in that people will identify with Christianity even if they don't really practice it at any meaningful level at all. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's actually Denmark because in Denmark, church and states are you know muddled together in lots of ways, uh, but everything is so you know cultural practices. You know, I, you know, exactly when you, if you, if you get, um, if you get baptized as a child in Denmark, um, you usually in the Danish uh, people's church, I believe it's called in English, Folkekirken uh, in Danish, um, you know, you have to be sort of, uh, I guess you have to confirm your faith when you turn 14. And kids are only confirming their faiths because it will land them a great party. Right. Or there's because social that, pressure to do so. Well, not even that. I mean, well, I guess there's some so social pressure and there's some cultural uh, practices uh, practices in place. Absolutely, yeah, you're right about that. But, but it's just you know some kid. You know, I I, I know this kid. I, I you know sort of uh, you know I guess I'm a sort of role model for him or whatever. <laughs> but he um, you know he he once said that when he was uh, getting to that age where he was uh, had to confirm his faith. He said, you know, we were talking about Christianity and he was like, it's so weird people believe this stuff. <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, it you know, is. he was, it absolutely yeah, is. It, it, yeah, it's true. But he was so detached from that cultural practice. And that's almost more dangerous than what you see in the US because Denmark are consistently um, viewed as one of the most atheistic countries in the world. And that's true. But that's because religion seeps into culture in a very nasty way, I would say. Um, I've ever even been asked to be, uh, I don't know, like Godfather in okay. a way in the Danish church uh, for my uh, for my um, uh, nieces and uh, what's the other, what's the nephews nephew and nieces, and uh, I've I declined all I declined all of them because I didn't want to sort of, yeah, propagate that, right. and okay. I'm not yeah I'm not very uh, a famous person in my family for doing so, but. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think there's something there. That's why you have in Denmark, theology is a huge deal here. Really? Our national philosopher is Søren Kierkegaard. And he, he uh, Søren Kierkegaard, I guess you would call <laughs> yeah, him. Nice but, American accent there. 
a sore in Kierkegaard. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but people always uh, take it. This, I even saw a book, this made me so angry, like a book which applied the principles, quote unquote principles of Søren Kierkegaard to how to lead a business. <laughs> so this existential philosopher, this existential thinker living in the 18th century, critiquing the Danish uh, Folkekirke I mentioned about, his principles are now being applied to to you know uh, leaders and how to lead things. So that's basically my point. Religion is this subversive, disgusting postmodern religion. Well, I think where... <laughs> that capitalism will. That's a, to me an example of capitalism being able to absorb and attenuate any sort of anything that's a contradiction. It will. It absorbs it and spits it out as a commodity in, in, in many many senses. Yeah, but uh, but you know, religion doesn't have the the grace, I guess the the, the uh, I don't know what you call it, but like there's not this same respect for religion as something uh, that should be held to high ideals. Which I'm an atheist myself, so that's cool. But those nasty uh, ressentiment notions of Christianity, though, they get sort of uh, you know they seep into culture. In Denmark, we have this thing called the law of Yente. Yentelon, which is, uh, I bet in English you call it uh, the tall poppy syndrome, if you've heard of that. I have not, no. Okay, well, it, every time a person is sort of successful, he or she gets pulled down by the community. Interesting. You're, yeah, you're not supposed to be better than us. Who do you think you are? You know, it's, it has these 12, well, Jordan Peterson, that case Jordan <laughs> Peterson very well, but it has these 12 rules or principles or whatever. And I think that sort of religion... You know, my father said that De Denmark was built on religion, and that is unfortunately true. But it's not religion as it is in the American sense. It's a very uh, relativistic cultural religion, which is, yeah, kind of obnoxious. Hmm. So we're not really atheists. That's my point. I see. Um, Interesting. And it's fair. It's, it seems like the opposite here in that we are really like we are atheists. Everyone is atheist. There is no ultimate value but there's a simulated difference to like you have to like i said if you wanted to run for president or office you would at least nominally make the motions of being representing yourself as oh i go to church or oh yes i'm a christian and i pray or you know what i mean okay. if you were running for if, even if like you'd have to make some um some sort of concessions to that and and at least your campaign rhetoric you couldn't just be Okay. Say, oh, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in this. Like, you would, you would not do very well. There would be a backlash against that. Okay. Well, and that's another interesting thing. I don't know how how long you want to go on for, but what one point is that in Denmark this year we'll have an election. And elections in Denmark work in the parliamentary way, where we elect a bunch of mandates to a parliament, and then they sort of constitute who will be the prime minister. Uh, so we don't vote directly for the president or right, the leader okay. of the country or whatever. And there's actually this one guy who was, uh, you know, a disgraced, again, quote unquote, disgraced businessman who swindled for a lot of, uh, you know, swindled a lot. Um, you know, I, I think he even, you know, sort of um, stole money from 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 the government, from the state itself. And he served his time in prison. You know, we don't have, you know, a lifetime in prison in Denmark isn't really a lifetime. It's like max 15 years. And then you're clean, clean even multiple offenses, which is cool, by the way. I'll just say that's, that's, that's a relief. But this guy is now running uh, to be a member of parliament, and he 
he, you know, he, he has no troubles being equated to Donald Trump. You know, he's as pragmatic, as populist, as uh, empty for content as Trump is. And you can sort of fill whatever you want into his uh, policies, I guess. I and in Denmark, you, you don't really run as a singular person. You run as a part of a party. And he created his own party, which bears his own name. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's a couple of things, and, you know, one thing is he's obnoxious. He can he can secure the victory for the uh, for the for the what we call the bourgeoisie in Denmark. You know the the conservatives, libertarians, what have you. But due to his influence, people might even waste their votes on him, which means that the social democrats and the socialists in Denmark will gain power. So everything in that re election falls on this guy, who is you know like a spitting image of Trump in a lot of ways. And it's, a, it's like a Mr. Bean scenario. It's that absurd <laughs> to follow, really. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, to me, Baudrillard really is the philosopher or the theorist for the moment. It's essentially, especially in America, in the moment of Trump, I mean, that is the first. I had divorced myself from politics for a long, long time after 2008 because, you know, we had Barack Obama was elected. But even you had before, Ron Paul. <laughs> before, oh, I actually, that's funny that you mentioned that. So in 2008, in the, so we have Democratic, like who to, to decide who gets the Democratic nation, or nomination yeah. rather, for president. You have uh, an election there as well amidst just the Democratic Party, for example. And yeah, so yeah. in that election, I voted for Barack Obama instead of Hillary Clinton. But then when it came time for the actual general election for the, when it was Obama versus McCain, I wrote in Ron Paul because <laughs> you can write in whomever you want. Okay. Ultimately, okay. ultimately if you want want to do that, um, so I ended up doing that because Obama had he had capitulated. There's like some type of basically these courts that you can apply to that would allow them to spy on people's phone calls and whatever. And so I essentially okay. saw that as a bellwether of okay, he's making all these you know, all this soaring rhetoric, but when things get down to it, he is just going to perpetuate the same sort of policy that's been the standard in the U.S. for, whoever, you know, however long, right? So after that, I just became totally disillusioned with politics. I didn't, like, I didn't vote in 2012. I wasn't prepared to vote in 2016 either. Okay, I just, but uh, you did. I happened to... <laughs> Uh, I went out for breakfast with some guys I had gone to college with, and they were saying how they would never vote for Hillary Clinton. And I thought, oh, my God, like these people are s taking Trump seriously as a candidate. Holy shit, what is happening? I have to vote now. So that's the reason okay, I ended so up voting. This is also a lot of the reason why I got back or I got back into politics and started the podcast was because I felt there okay. were there was a perspective on the left that was missing, particularly in the U.S. of, uh, you know what I mean? There was all this, people like Jordan Peterson, et cetera, are mischaracterizing postmodernism and yeah, even yeah. identity politics and so forth. And so I wanted <laughs> yeah, to yeah. provide a different, you know, a different perspective ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, actually, you know, uh, I'm so I'm sort of still caught up because I listened to the Sigdoman uh, episode, and you guys talked about voting as anarchists or as radicals. Right. You know where you 
where both of you actually agreed on, on the point that you should vote. You know, if you're a very, uh, <laughs> very active anarchist trying to rile up people, trying to, you know, you know, do other kinds of subversive acts, then you were sort of excused from voting. But if you're not doing that, then voting should be the bare minimum right you should do yeah and uh, that actually you know struck a chord with me because i uh, you know I've, I've never heard it you know being sort of put that clearly to me um because i've never voted as well i'm 25 years old and in denmark we get to vote when we are 18 so there's been a couple of elections where i haven't voted both regional and local and right. uh, national and i haven't voted uh because exactly because i'm a probably very close to being an anarchist or something to that effect but this actually this rocked something within me um so i just wanted to say that yeah definitely this podcast does exert some influence on us <laughs> yeah because i mean ultimately yes um is voting really gonna you're never gonna vote revolution right that's not gonna happen yeah. no no and no. in some degrees you know i definitely i'm sympathetic extremely sympathetic to the perspective of maybe like a Maoist or someone that is more extreme in the in the Marxist-Leninist tradition that um, a voting is actually supporting imperialism. I mean, I, I get, I understand that perspective. I really do. I sympathize with it. But there, a Marxist-Leninist revolution is not coming to the U.S. I mean, there, that's the most, we can't even get a moderate, you know, center-left candidate, someone like Bernie Sanders elected to president. So the work that would need to be done in the U.S. to overcome capitalism is almost insurmountable. And my opinion in particular is that, and I think I said it on that podcast as well, is that climate change, climate catastrophe is the only thing that is strong enough to destroy capitalism or to bring it down. And uh, okay. so in the meantime, there are people on the margins. There are margin. There is a marginal difference between, at least in the U.S., a Republican and a Democrat or conservative and a liberal. There are marginal differences that do have material impacts on people's lives in terms of whether it be food stamps or different social programs that get cut yeah. um, whenever a Republican comes into office. So that is my perspective, and that's the reason why I think it is okay to vote if you're an anarchist like yeah, i said i don't okay. think that ultimately yes does it solve anything is electoralism the answer no but in the meantime if i can help someone get a baby get fed or clothed or receive something because i voted then i think absolutely yeah. it, it is a uh, okay to do so in that context yeah unless yeah. like i said unless you're ready to you know you're carrying out anarchist violence and you're doing different subversive activities like you said then yes you have the right to condemn me for voting uh whenever you're leading an insurrectionary army against the u.s i'm, I'm all for it but until then um let's do what we can to uh to affect change yeah that, that, you know uh, actually it's yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of bad timing that i listened to it before talking to you because it, you know it has sort of uh, been sort of um you know been it's been in a, on my mind when we've been talking, and I, you know, in Denmark, there's a there's there seems to be quite a big presence of uh, Antifa or Antifa, okay, uh, anti-fascist. Yeah, I don't know how you where you yeah, put Antifa. the the inflection Antifa. Yeah, right. Okay, um, but but uh, 
I don't really get to see them. I just see their stickers all over the place, and they they have different fractions, all of them against racism, all of them against fascism. But I don't actually see them in the streets. I just see their stickers, and then the stickers have uh, you know web pages, and I try to look up at those web pages, and they look slick and they look like they're updated regularly. But I just don't see them in the streets. And that's just the thing that kind of frustrated me because I've had some uh, French anarchists um, uh, send me some messages on Twitter asking about, you know, I was reading The Invisible Committee. And they were sort of uh, like, uh, you know, they, they get criticized for mentioning that, for bringing that up in, in France, apparently. So he told me. Um, but, but in Denmark, there's not even that subversive um, thing you can do. Because as I mentioned earlier, we, we are a very consensus-based country. Uh, there's no, you know, the other day we had a, a sort of, you know, that international climate strike day. Uh, you probably had it as well in the US. Um, it was uh, started by that uh, Swedish girl who, uh, you know, that teenager, Swedish teenager. And we had, we actually, for the first time in a long time, I would say, we had some people being arrested while they were demonstrating. And I think that's, you know, my, my point here is, uh, I haven't fully articulated, but my point is here, this is a good sign. I hope, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Maoist in the way that I think the revolution will come from the smoke of the gun as well, as Mao put it. Uh, I'm, I'm a guy who will probably defend violence when it comes to revolutionary um, antics, I guess you could call them. And I think this was a great start for Denmark, because look at the Gilets Jaunes in France. They've been doing this since November that's a long time right you know they've been on the street uh, uh you know pushing against the system and now they're starting parties which is a very unfortunate thing but still there's this this um putting strain on the system um is is sort of getting its way to denmark as well just very slowly unfortunately and you know it's just this this uh, podcast episode with you and sigdom and just sort of sparked me to think about that i didn't really have a point it was just something that was <laughs> i was very emotional about it i, I guess well i i did see i don't know if this was true but i had seen some posts on twitter that macron was threatening there was going to be violence for the uh for the protesters there but i don't know if that was legitimate or not or what the s scenario was but um back to you mentioned antifa so i had I think it was in maybe Sweden that there was a gentleman, I think that had emigrated, he lived in Sweden and he was Muslim or something like that, and okay. was talking about how the Antifa would basically would escort kids home from school to keep them um, oh, from getting okay. picked on or things like getting attacked or harassed or what have you, which I thought was very admirable and I think that ultimately is kind of aligns with what I would hope Antifa would really be about so yeah because in Scandinavia we had one you know like a Christ Christchurch shooter we had a uh, Breivik in 2012 I don't know you yeah you probably heard of him uh, but he wrote a manifesto he did the signs you know with the hand as well as this Christchurch guy did or whoever it was we, we had that in Scandinavia this you know it's just interesting to see that even though there's differences this populism has seeped has seeped to scandinavia as well in countries that are so social democratic where that level of alienation which i imagine to be present in the united states maybe it's not because 
Scandinavia is sort of founded on that notion of community. Right. You know, we had a, you know, we had a lot of people, you know, again, forming unions and making strong, well-funded uh, welfare states. Unfortunately, that has sort of, uh, you know, that has taken a turn for the, for the, for the worse now. But it's just, you know, it's just that populist wave is really a wave. I, I really, I don't, I don't have a point. It's just something that's on my mind right now as we talk about this. And, uh, and Tifa, I hope, I hope I get to see them on the streets. I hope I get to see them doing this, escort, you know, like escorting children. We had these people called Venliborn, which means friendly livers, like a friendly way to live. It's a pun. Uh, and they actually helped a lot of immigrants getting settled in Denmark. Uh, and they continue to do so, like helping them learn the language, helping them fill out forms to get, you know, sort of apply to welfare programs and getting them into schools, etc. So, I don't know, it's just... It's just such a weird timeline we live in right now. It absolutely is. And I think it's interesting the the sort of rise of this new fascism or I don't you know, I'm not even sure if we can call it fascism. It's fascistic to some degree. Yeah. It's it's a global phenomenon and it makes yeah. you wonder what the real antecedent causes are. But you know, you see it in Brazil, you see it in Hungary the US with Trump, Hungary, um, really a lot of the Eastern European countries. Um, I mean, even f France with Le Pen, uh, yeah, Br yeah. Britain with, um, what's his name, Farage. Oh, yeah, Nigel Farage, it's yeah. Like, every, every place has its own analog, and you were just and mentioning Gerd earlier, the gentleman yeah. there in, in, in Denmark as well, that's sort of the, the Danish Trump. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. It's a scary time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a scary time to be on the left and not feel totally hopeless at this point under the barrage <laughs> well, I'm, of all of it. I'm, I'm kind of in the middle because if we get to a fascist or Nazi regime again, you know, I'm Scandinavian, which is good because they sort of saw Scandinavia as a kind of ideal, you know, right. the perfect race, yeah. etc. So I'm sort of, you know, I'm good. <laughs> You're you know? shielded but, from, uh, uh, <laughs> from the racist violence, but... But on the other hand, I'm Polish, and I had great-grandparents who were killed in Auschwitz as well. Um, so it's, yeah, <laughs> you know, when we talk about, you know, even my wife and I, we were sort of talking about what if something happened in Denmark? You know, just a decade ago, we had the, all sorts of terrorism because of the drawings of Mohammed. You probably right, yeah. heard of them yeah, in 2005. And, you know, and now we were talking about, of course, uh, Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump and Fire, Fire and Fury, etc. And we were like, what would we do, actually, literally, if it came to, to down to the wire? You know, what would we do? And we were sort of like, well, maybe we would escape to Norway or Sweden or because we wouldn't want to go. You know, it's just it's just the human condition is just a weird one right now where we actually strategize in this way i mean it sounds so paranoid to say it but you know it could where it could very well be the case just a few years down the line absolutely and that's <laughs> it's funny coming from the u.s where it, everything is very chaotic and, and contentious and we have this more so individualist society and no union presence unions have been destroyed yeah. like all that really the left in general is so divorced from power that it's it's frankly really sad and the the democratic party which is the liberal party is essentially the center right you know ultimately kind of an, on an in, yeah. international level 
in comparison. So, but I don't want to take up. Uh, I feel like we've been talking for over two hours. I don't want to take up oh, any more well, of your okay. time and make this an unbearable listen. Um, no, I mean two hour point, but. <laughs> This was a really cool thing to be a yeah, part of, Cooper. Absolutely. And uh, I I'd hope love that you'll to uh, join join me again later down the road. I think uh, maybe a Baudrillard episode or even cool. Deleuze Watari. I would love to hear more. Yeah, I'll be more calm by then because now <laughs> I know the rules. Yeah, exactly. It's um, yeah, we're just two two guys having a conversation, really. Yeah, That's exactly. Kind of yeah. It, so. Thanks again, but uh, once more, uh, Simon Uberic. And yeah, Simon. Before you, before we close out, actually, go ahead and uh, share with us if you want to share your Twitter handle, Instagram, whatever social media websites, YouTube, whatever you want to share. I want to give you the opportunity to do so. Okay, thanks. Uh, my Twitter is uh, you know at Simon Obirik, so O B I R E K. Just you know, straightforward, no no underscores <laughs> or whatever. And then Twitter is the same thing. <laughs> youtube.com slash simonobiric i keep consistent i like that but if you want the truly smart, yeah. yeah and if you want the truly cool things then go to my instagram which is obiric and then an underscore and if you want the other one which is the truly subversive one that's the one called subversive theory all right uh so that's my social media links sounds good i will also put those in the show notes for you um so i should probably i will probably schedule this to release Monday morning, 7 a.m. Central. So that would probably be, um, I don't know, late afternoon your time? Yeah, yeah. Or mid yeah, six hours. So. There's six hours. Yeah. I will definitely, I'll uh, DM you a link to the show so that you can share it as well. Thank you so much. But uh, thank you uh, again for coming on and, and talking. I hope, uh, like I said, I hope we can have you back on in the future. Absolutely. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Yeah, and you too. Right back at you. All right, cheers. <laughs> so.